We're gonna draw our text from Matthew chapter four. So I want you to turn there at this time. Temptation is a weird thing. Why are we tempted by certain things? Temptation implies it's something you probably shouldn't do, but you, for some reason, are wanting to do it or tempted by it. And, uh, and it's really sort of the very base of humanity. It's like the very depth of our soul. We're tempted to do things we know are gonna hurt us or mess us up or be a bummer long run, but man, we're just so tempted. Um, like leaving your phones on during church, huge temptation. <laughs> But, um, but, but we know that you know, temptation is something you don't wanna do. I, I feel like my dog sometimes, my old dog Charlie, who's now in doggy heaven, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he was great when it came to this. I remember I would set a treat down for him, you know, and, and I would say, now no, wait, you know, and, and he was so good, but it cracked me up, his tactics of how to avoid the temptation. Because instead of just looking at the treat, he would just look around like, Every, anywhere but the treat, he would be like waiting. And, and as soon as I'd give him the signal, he's like right into that treat. But I thought, man, he's smarter than I am. Because uh, we look at our temptations and we just stare at them and go, oh, it's beautiful. And we want that. Uh, well, that's what happens with most of us. And, and because of that, we all enter into sin, temptation to do stuff that we shouldn't do. And as it turns out, Satan has a tackle box full of lures to try to get you to be hooked and into bondage and taken away with your sin. That's what Satan really wants to do. Um, and, uh, and when I say tackle box, man, lures are funny. I remember as a kid growing up in Applegate, uh, you know, we had the Applegate River and, and it didn't take much. Maybe the trout in Applegate were not that smart, but all you needed was a, uh, you know, a, a stick and a string and, and a hook and a grasshopper and you're good to go. And you could just catch your limit, you know, those trout there in the Applegate River. Um, and then when I got older, I got so much fishing in when I was a kid, I, I kind of don't do it as much as an adult, and, but I have watched some of you crazy guys on those fishing shows with your computers and gadgetry and you got you know, depth finders and fish finders and nuclear activated uh, you know, lures and stuff like uh, little jiggly bobs and rooster tails and bugs with wings and all kinds of stuff to try to trick the fish into biting the lure that take the bait. Um, and, uh, and, and have you ever thought what goes through a fish's mind? Like, have you ever thought about this? You know, you're just swimming along, minding your own business, all of a sudden you see something beautiful. And you follow it, and it's there, woo, through the water. Oh, that looks delightfully tasty. And so you just take the bite, and then you feel that sharp pain in the side of your cheek, and you're like, what? And then all of a sudden, you're being dragged against your will a different direction and you're swimming against it and, and you hear in this faint noise off in some other world saying, he's a fighter, he's a fighter, <laughs> putting up a fight. You're like, what is that? And then suddenly you're swarmed in a net and pulled up out of your cosmos, your world into some other world where this big ugly creature is looking at you and doing selfies with you and, and, and like holding you really out far so he looks bigger in the picture than he really is and stuff like that. And you're like, what in the world? But then he takes that hook and rips it out of your face and then throws you back in. So there you're swimming in there, you know, catch and release. And you're like, what was that all about? Um, <laughs> and you're a freak now, you're a fish freak because you got a hole in the side of your mouth. You're like Portlandia, you know, the piercings and stuff. It's not so cool in, in the water if you're a fish. Um, you say, Brett, what are you talking about? Well, it's so funny because that's exactly what Satan does. He, he puts something shiny and something that we think we really want and he lures you in and he wants you to take the bait. And the question is, what are you gonna do? 
A lot of times humanity, we've failed. Well, the Super Bowl of temptation is Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11, where the enemy, Satan, does his best to try to trip up the one who was sinless, the one who had never sinned ever before. And so he's gonna go against Jesus when it comes to this idea of temptation. And he comes to Jesus at a moment of real weakness. Brett, are you saying Jesus was at a weak point? Uh, is that even possible? Well, the answer is yes. And we read it right here. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter four. Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards unhungered. This is the Bible. Under the inspiration of the spirit, the Bible says Jesus was hungry. And I would say that's a point of real weakness. When you're hungry, do you know what I mean? Like there's something about when you're really hungry, well, you families that have gone on vacation, you know what I'm talking about. You're going along, everybody's getting along great and everything's good. And then you realize you haven't had lunch for a while or eaten for a while and everybody's getting at each other, starting to get grouchy. We call it hangry in our family. You get hangry and pretty soon you're, you're upset and then you go get the pizza or whatever and then suddenly there's are petunias and rainbows again. Everything's wonderful after, uh, after you've eaten and everything's good. But, but can you imagine Jesus? I've never fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a horrible idea if you ask me. <laughs> but Jesus was perfect and uh, <laughs> some of you are like, Brett, you should try that. I'm like, I'm not Jesus. Um, um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but, but Jesus, it says here that he's hungry. So he's been out in the wilderness, which, you know, that's not like the Arctic region or something. You have to understand the wilderness in Bible times was the Negev desert south of the Dead Sea. And it was just a dry, barren, hot desert. And there's Jesus hungry for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's when Satan comes at him. Um, uh, and, and he's gonna try out this sort of temptation and he's gonna put lures before Jesus to try to, to trick him. By the way, you know, it's funny, um, when it comes to this idea of the, the, the hook, it's not just me making that up, it's the Bible. The Bible talks about how Satan wants to set the snare. The word snare is used over and over in the Bible. Second uh, Timothy 2.26, uh, you know, he, Paul's talking about those who got hooked by Satan, it says, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive um, you know, by him at his will. The word snare is not only used here in the Greek New Testament, but in the, all throughout the whole Hebrew Old Testament, you know, like Proverbs 29 talks about how the fear of man is a snare. And the word snare is an interesting Hebrew word. The word is mukesh, uh, which means, um, it, it's an interesting word that means uh, bait, uh, lure, uh, hook, or hook in the nose. But what does hook in the nose have to do with the snare? In the Old Testament times, the enemies of Israel would sometimes do just that. They'd get a big giant fish hook and they'd put it in a person's nose and then chain link people, the prisoners together and march them up to like the Assyrians did. They put hooks in the noses of the Jews. Um, that, that's the word, the, the Hebrew word is mokesh. And the Bible uses that same word over and over again, talking about how Satan wants to get his hook in you and drag you around and deal with you in a way that you don't want to have happen. Um, you know, it's interesting because in 2 Corinthians chapter two, verse 11, um, it also talks about this, this snare. It says um, that one thing that we're supposed to do is not be ignorant. It says, Satan, lest he should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We're told to, to sort of know what uh, Satan is up to and know what his lures are and his tricks. 
So, so Jesus is fasting. Satan comes after Jesus at a point where he's hungry and a, a possible uh, weakness. Now, here's what I have to say about this, because some of you are gonna be sort of struggling with this. Um, uh, was Jesus really tempted? And I'm gonna say something that sounds really ignorant, something that sounds really stupid, but I'm gonna say it anyway. For temptation to be temptation, it has to be temptation. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? So if this is really the temptation of Jesus, was Jesus tempted to sin? Hello? Thank you. Tumbleweeds were blowing across the sanctuary for a second there. I was like, yeah, Jesus was tempted to sin, yet never sinned. Okay, that's the important part. Um, and, and that's the idea here. In Matthew chapter you know, four, we're gonna see this, the, the temptation of Christ. And, and I have to say, he, he's a, he's a, a, it's a very real temptation. One of the things that's hard to figure, and I, I'm not even gonna pretend to really have a great answer for this, but um, as it turns out, Jesus was 100% man, but he's also 100% God at the same time. Well, how can that be, Brett? I don't know. Um, but he's God, so he can do whatever he wants. I, I, I can't figure it out, but the idea is, you know, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. He's called Emmanuel. We learned in chapter one of Matthew that, that that word Emmanuel means God with us. God visited humanity and he became a man, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant and became in the likeness of men. And to be living as a man, he suffered and hurt and was tempted like a man. He, he knew our wounds and our troubles and our hurts. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 and 16 says, for we have not a high priest, Jesus is our high priest, the mediator between God and man is the idea there. But our high priest, um, uh, we have not a high priest that which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Now, this is the King James way using a double negative um, by saying we don't have a high priest which cannot be touched. It means our high priest has felt all of our wounds and infirmities and hurts. But it says, was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So the, the temptations you face, Jesus has faced them all. And they were very real temptations, yet without sin. By the way, the reason that's such important, the yet without sin part, if Jesus falls for one of these tricks of Satan, here in Matthew chapter four, you and I would be doomed to hell forever. The, 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 the situation here in this story is pretty, pretty amazing. If Jesus sinned, then there would be no sinless lamb to be slain for the sins of the whole world. So the, 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 the subject matter here is pretty, pretty radical. Um, so thank the Lord. He was tempted in all points like we were, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne root of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So all that to say here in Matthew chapter four, the, um, you know, Satan comes to try to tempt and to uh, hit him while he's hurting, while he's hungry. And then in verse three, it says, and when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he, Jesus, answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now here's the very first of three attacks that Satan throws at Jesus, these little fiery darts of temptation. Um, and you know, one thing you gotta notice is one of Satan's titles is given to us here in verse three, when the tempter came to him. That's one of Satan's nicknames. 
He's the tempter. That's what he wants to do is tempt you and me to do stuff that we shouldn't do. Um, But how does he do this? The very first temptation here that is thrown at Jesus, we're gonna call each one of these something separate, but the first of three is number one, Satan is seen questioning God's word. And it's the oldest trick in the book. I hope you understand that. I hope you understand that Satan, one of the first things he's gonna do to you to try to tempt you to sin is to have you question, hath God really said, if you're really the son of God, implying that he's not, then make these stones into bread. And, and he's questioning whether God can do what he says he's gonna do. And, and if Jesus is God's son, he's questioning that right here. It's the oldest trick in the book. Um, now, how do we know, by the way, that Jesus is God's son? Well, by this time in the story, we know it because if one, on Wednesday night, when we read Matthew chapter three, we're gonna see that Jesus is in fact God. Um, uh, it's like, um, you know, in Matthew chapter three, uh, verse 17, we'll see on Wednesday night, where it says, this is my beloved son. When did Jesus say this? At baptism, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Can you imagine a little bird, a dove flies down in the, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, lands on Jesus, and then the sky opens up and then the booming voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the word of God literally coming from heaven to all the people. And what's the next chapter? The next chapter of Matthew is right here when it says, if you're really the son of God, he's questioning God's word. It's the, it's the oldest trick in the book. Um, God gives a word, you'll know what it says. And then Satan will come and say, did God really say that? It's, and I say it's the oldest trick in the book because it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the very original sin. In fact, would you keep your finger here in Matthew? Let's just for fun, flip back to Genesis chapter three, just the first few pages of your Bible, Genesis chapter three. And we have the story of the serpent, who's the devil in the form of a serpent there in the Garden of Eden. And here's how that story goes down. It says in verse one of chapter three of Genesis. Now the serpent was more subtle, sneaky, is the idea there, than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, that's it right there, he's questioning the word of God. Hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, pause for a second here. We have two big problems going on here. First of all, we got Satan, Lucifer, uh, you know, the serpent, questioning God's word, but Eve's actually messing things up too. She's adding to God's word. She added to what God said. God told Adam and Eve, do not eat of the fruit of that tree. Then she added, and you should not touch it either. You say, well, Brett, that's just a small point. Forget that, what big deal, whatever. But do you know that's a problem still today? Human nature is to hear what God says and then to add to it and sort of make it harder than it was to begin with. In fact, we like to lay heavier burdens on each other than God wants to lay on ourselves. Um, And that's happened for millennia now. You know, Jesus' day, they, Jesus said, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. The, the, the Bible said that, the Hebrew Bible. So the Jews said, okay, remember the Sabbath day, rest on the Sabbath day, and to make sure nobody's working, you better not be working. And so if you're wearing false teeth on the Sabbath day, 
uh, then take out your false teeth because you're carrying false teeth and that constitutes work. So what do you eat? I guess you have to eat like a Slurpee or whatever on Sunday or Saturday on the Sabbath because you don't have your teeth in. And, and by the time Jesus comes on the scene, these guys are, have all these stupid rules they've added to the Sabbath. And Jesus said, you guys, man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. It was meant to be a blessing, not a bummer. And that's what humanity does. Human nature is just to make a bummer out of stuff and add to what God says, especially when it comes to legalism or restrictions or rules or what have you. Oh, I could give you millions of examples. Maybe some of you who are raised in churches where they said, you know, drums are the devil's instrument. <laughs> are the drums the devil's instrument? No, the basses. Um, <laughs> uh, just kidding. Sorry, Scotty. Um, it's red though, just saying. No, no, just kidding. Um, yeah, uh, there's no devil's instrument. That's ridiculous. I'm sorry if you were raised in a church like that, but that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The drums are the devil's instrument. Where did they get that? Well, Brett, you know it's the beat. Well, I think that's just stupid. I'm sorry. I've been to Africa where they don't have instruments except they, they have these goat skin drums out in the middle of the bush. Yeah, that's evil. No, nope, I've met people that make our Christianity look ridiculous. Some of our African friends out in the middle of the bush with a goatskin drum, I've heard worship services that were some of the most blessed worship times I've ever had in my life, just hearing these African people sing out to God and all they have is a goatskin drum. And you're gonna call that the devil's instrument? I think that's, I think when you get stand before the Lord someday, the Lord's gonna go, yeah, you were really wrong on that one. Um, and then some churches, maybe you were raised not in the drums are evil, but all instruments are evil. How many of you guys went to a church where they just took all the instruments out altogether? Yeah, lots of you went to those churches uh, where they said no instruments, that, that's just not right. Even though the Bible is full of examples of instruments being played as worship to the Lord. Play on stringed instruments, on the sounding gong and the clanging cymbal, on the loud cymbals, praise the Lord, it says. That's, that's the Bible. We need to let the Bible, the word of God needs to stand, but you and I have to be careful not to add to the word and put bigger burdens on people. So that was what Eve did. She was sort of messing that up a little bit as well. But we get back to the main issue here. Satan here in Genesis um, three questioned God's word with Eve. And, and, um, and so the story goes on. In fact, if we keep reading here in Genesis, um, it says, so uh, she says, don't touch it lest you die. And the servant said, you will not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open and you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, does this remind you of the fisherman's lure? As we read on, it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, that's the lure, she took of the fruit and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them were opened, they knew that they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now I've been to the Middle East nine times, and um, every time I go there, I often look at those fig trees in the Middle East, not a good idea, let me just say that. Sewing these Middle Eastern fig leaves together for an apron, uh, if you're naked, you might as well use like 80 grit sandpaper, that'd be more comfortable. Um, to, to do that to these fig leaves in the Middle East. But they do that and the Lord has mercy and makes camel or you know, uh, probably uh, lambskin, uh, but skin clothing for them, the Lord does that. But when Satan um, sort of questions God's word, hath God said, 
Um, that's exactly what Satan will do with you. Does the Bible really say that you shouldn't, you know, like, like last week we were talking about biblical sex ed. Does the Bible really say you're not supposed to sleep with someone before you married? Oh, come on, everybody does it. And, you know, and he'll just try to lure you with the temptation of sexual sin, fornication. And you'll be tempted to go in there and just say, okay, I'm going in, gonna take a bite at the lure. It's the oldest trick in the book. And so really questioning God's word is what Satan has, is, he's all about that. Um, you know, and, and, and what is it that the, the, the enemy whispers in your ear? You know, um, ah, so skim a little bit off the top financially. The IRS has enough money. Uh, we don't need to be completely honest. I'm mostly honest with my taxes and this and that. And people can get kind of carried away into that little lure that the enemy puts out. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so what was Jesus's response? Let's go back to Matthew chapter four. And I love it because um, every time Jesus is attacked by Satan, he answers with these three words, it is written. How do you do battle against the lures of Satan? Really simple here. Jesus models it perfectly. It is written. What does the Bible really say? When Satan questions God's word, you need to remember what God's word really actually says. And, and to uh, you know, fight that with the word of God. The word of God is the one offensive weapon you and I've been given to do battle against Satan. Uh, the Bible calls itself the sword of the spirit. So when Satan's luring you in, does the Bible really say you need to go, time to pull out the word of God. And that's what Jesus did when he said, it is written. That's like the unsheathing of the word. And then he speaks the word and he knows what Deuteronomy chapter eight, notice in your margin when Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, word for word. He's using the sword of the spirit to uh, sort of undo what Satan is trying to do with his you know, questioning of God's word. Um, I like that Jesus is doing battle here. Don't forget what James says in James 4, 7. This is a promise of God's word. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What an amazing promise. Now, if you resist him the first time and he's still there, what do you do? Anybody? Keep resisting. That's what Jesus is gonna do. He's gonna go through three rounds of this. Now, maybe with Jesus it was three rounds. Maybe with you it'll be 20 rounds, who knows? But don't forget this promise of God's word. Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and you might even put in there, eventually he will flee from you. That's a promise of God's word. You know, it's interesting because um, Satan sort of goes to a place where Jesus is weak. He's hungry. And then he says, why don't you make these stones into bread? Wonder if he put a little smell of fresh baked bread from the oven, you know, kind of wafting through the wilderness there. Uh, you know, when you're really hungry, there's something like that smell of bread in the oven. And Jesus could have just said, I could make, do you think Jesus could have made the stones into bread? Of course he could have, but it would have been sin. So he didn't. Um, now, what's interesting about that, Jesus says, a man shall not live by bread, that which satisfies only for a short time, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus recognizes that making bread is not the solution, but living by the word of God is the key. That's what Jesus does. So this idea of making the bread out of stones is nothing but a lure with a big old hook in it. And Satan wants to try to catch Jesus with this one. 
By the way, those, um, those lures and hooks and stuff, um, it's interesting because um, Satan's just doing the same old thing. Um, what, is, what is Satan dangling in front of you and are you ready to do battle against that? You know, let's say you're just a guy, been married to your wife 10 years, you got a few little kids at home and the, and the wife, she's a little grumpier because there's a lot more work with the kids and, and she doesn't always get all, you know, prettied up every day and she's got some spit up on her shoulder every time you say goodbye and, and she makes you take out the trash and all that stuff. But you go to work and there's this beautiful young girl that's so nice to you. She doesn't ask you to take the garbage out. She's at work and she's all, you know, you know dressed to the nines because she's at work. And, and, and man, you can talk to her and she listens. Then you go back home to your grouchy wife. And every day, eight hours a day, you're with her and you spend a few hours at the end of the day with your wife. And, and there she is. And you're talking to her, boy, she cares about me and, and she actually is nice to me and she thinks I'm a neat guy and all that. You know what she is? She's a hook in the nose. Brett, that's not nice to say about that. No, no, Satan is dangling something in front of you that's trying to lure you away from what God really has for you. And God wants you to be married to the wife of your youth and to stick with her and to fix whatever problem you have in your heart. Um, How do you fix that, Brett? I don't love her anymore. Well, if you've fallen out of love, um, the Bible gives you some scriptures uh, like for example, Jesus talked about, you know, this, this is a basic rule of life. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if your treasure is starting to be poured into the, the lady at work, don't be shocked when your heart's there, not at home. That's just you doing it wrong. What you need to do is reinvest your treasure in time and energy and not spend so much time with the girl at work. In fact, look for ways not to and pour in back into your wife. And on the way home from work, you get flowers and then take her out to dinner and get a babysitter. Now the wives are like, oh, my husband just gave me flowers. What does this mean? Um, no, don't, don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Um, but, but if you reinvest into your marriage, you're gonna fall in love again. When these young couples say, Brett, I've fallen out of love, um, there's a way to fall back in love and that's your job. Um, it's a commitment that you've made to say, I'm gonna reinvest. So, so what do you do when you're at work and then that lady stands in front of you and you're like tempted to think, boy, I wished I was married to her rather than my wife, then what do you do? You gotta break out your ammo scripture. And, and, and man, speak it out, not to her, the lady at work, but to yourself say, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Just say it. Um, if you wanna be really holy, go to the break room and say it out loud, it is written. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. The Proverbs tell us that. And, and, and you know, the, 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 the Proverbs tell us that, you know, um, you need to stay with the wife of your youth. Um, like, like, have some ammo scripture where you can say, I'm gonna speak forth, because Satan's dangling that lure in front of you. And by the way, the scenario I just painted, one of the oldest tricks in the book. He's always trying to get lure I think maybe particularly, not exclusively, but particularly men, trying to lure men away um, with lust. And that's one of the oldest tricks in the book. Do you have ammo scripture ready to go? Jesus sure did. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. Well, all that to say, you might say, Brad, I'm not much of a Bible reader. I don't know Bible verses by heart, so I don't have ammo scriptures. Uh, Fix that. You need to fix that. 
Uh, start memorizing. Well, Brett, I'm not really a reader. Um, I hear people's excuses all the time, and it's funny because I think the Lord put me in this place just for people like you, because guess what? I'm not a reader either. Uh, now, some of you say, well, Brett, I don't believe that. Well, let me just say, you wanna know how many books I read during high school? Zero. Yeah, but didn't you have assignments? Yep. And I just kind of wing it on the reports and stuff like that. Ask my sisters, what's that book about? Okay, I'll do a report on that. I am not a reader. I don't like reading. I never have liked reading. I, I, my wife is a reader, man. She just gobbles down books, you know. And, and uh, I talk to other pastors, the, the good pastors, and they, they're, you know, they read like two books a week. I'm like, what? I read two books like in the last 10 years. You wanna know the books I read? I read the books if you guys are all, like if the church gets all up into some book that I, I kinda go, oh no, what, what's this book? Everybody's all excited about the Da Vinci Code. So I read it and I go, oh yeah, paganism, weirdness, stupidity, and I'll read it. Um, or, or The Shack, everybody's reading. Remember when The Shack was really popular? And it was like, oh, The Shack is an amazing book. Oh, I better read it. It's not an amazing book. It's actually a misrepresentation of God in the Bible. Um, some of you, I can tell you're troubled by that. I'm just being honest with you. The shock hurt Christianity's truth. It really did, I'm just saying. Um, but, but, I, but I have to admit, I do read the Bible a lot. And I'll just say that, but I, I am not a reader. I remember one of my advisors in high school said, Brett, don't even think about going to college. You do not have reading comprehension. You cannot read. That's what she told me. Um, uh, and um, I did go to college and I still didn't read. Um, <laughs> um, but, but here's what I, I've learned about myself. And I wanna, I wanna throw this out to some of you non-readers. Um, I've realized the reason I don't love to read is it takes me a ton of work to comprehend what's on a page. Um, and, I, and if I read a page, I usually have to read it like three times. I'm just being honest. And I read it three times and eventually it, I go, oh, I get what they're saying. Now, here's some good news. And, and by the way, my daughter, Casey, she, she's um, an amazing uh, public school teacher and super smart. But she and I both laugh because we recognize she got my thing about reading. She, she's not great at reading comprehension either. But we both kind of discovered together that while we're not great at reading comprehension, once we do read the page three times, this is, it. I'm not bragging, I'm just gonna say this though. She and I, we actually lock in on that page and remember it forever. Like it's a weird thing. I can't read hardly at all, but when I do read and I really rake over it, somehow it just kind of chink locks in there. And so that's helped me once I realized it's a little more work for me. Um, and just because I knew I was supposed to read my Bible as a kid, I started reading my Bible and it was work. And I'd have to read the page three or four times and I'd read commentaries and read those four, three or four times. But it's, it's kind of cool how the Lord has used my, my weakness, I guess, um, and, and made that part of the deal. The reason I say that is because some of you say, well, right, I can't memorize things. Well, none of us can memorize stuff. It's hard work. And I think a lot of us are just kind of lazy because we think, well, I'm just not very good at memorizing scripture. Um, the reason you're not very good at it is because you're not wanting to do the work. Anything that's worthwhile is a lot of work. And I think memorizing ammo scripture uh, for your particular struggle would be work well done. Um, well, what scriptures should I memorize? Well, if you're, if you're a, a person say like, here, this is just a freebie for you. Let's say you deal with envy. Everywhere you go, you envy people what they're driving, their house, their shoes, their car, their, their makeup, whatever your thing is you're envying. Um, here's what you do. You can go and Google scriptures about envy. Google it. It's amazing. Google's wacko and evil, but it'll help you find the scriptures. 
uh, but Google it and, and then find the three top scriptures you can think of there that are listed on Google uh, after you Google it, scriptures on envy, and you might be shocked and, and start memorizing those. And then every time you see someone with that house, it's all ship lapped up. I don't even know if that's still popular, but I just remember Chip and Joanna, it's everything about ship lap. So you're like, oh, I wish I had that house. Then you just say, thou shalt not covet. Like find the, 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 the good envy scriptures if that's your problem or coveting or whatever your thing is, anger. Find the scriptures about not being angry, but have ammo scriptures in your heart because it's the way to roll. Um, by the way, this is what helps you when you're dealing with temptation. I love Psalm 119 verses nine through 11. Um, wherewithal or how <laughs> shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Jesus had the, the scriptures from Deuteronomy hidden in his heart. So he was able to pull the sword of the spirit out and say, it is written. And, and he used the word to keep him from sin. If you're struggling with temptation, the answer is to use the sword of the spirit, have scripture right on the tip of your tongue. Not only is it good for, you know, keeping you from sin, also washing you, like it says here, how shall a man cleanse his way? Or in Ephesians 5, the scripture I was quoting about the husband, husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word that he might present himself a glorious church on his spot a wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. When you read the word, there's a washing by the water of the word. I love that. Um, Jesus said this, now you are clean in John 15, three. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. See, some of you might say, Brad, I, I read the Bible and it just goes through me like water through a sieve. And my answer to that is, well, at least you'll have a clean sieve. Your sieve gets messed up all the time by sinful junk. And there's something about reading the word that says, you know, that Christ washes his church in the water of the word. And Jesus said, now you are clean by the word. So stick with it. Don't give up on reading scripture. Don't give up on memorizing scripture. Well, that's what we see Jesus. He's gonna do battle. And every single of these, these three temptations, he's gonna say, it is written. So that's kind of a key observation. So number one, questioning God's word. Number two, Satan is seen twisting God's word. If he doesn't question it, he'll try to make a, a new twist on scripture. And that's where we pick it up in verse five. It says, then the devil taketh him up to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down for it is written, uh-oh. Satan's like, well, two can play at that game. You're gonna quote scripture at me, I'm gonna quote scripture at you. Did you know that Satan can quote scripture? Um, but he's gonna do sort of a twisted version of scripture. I'll show you what I mean here in a minute. Um, so he says, Satan says, it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. And Jesus said unto him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Uh, there's so much here. Jesus is claiming to be the Lord thy God, first of all, because Satan's tempting him. And, um, and Jesus says, thou shalt not tempt. He says, it is written. But isn't it something that Satan 
twist scripture here. I'll show you how in a second. But before we get to that, I'm, I'm a little nerdy. I like to know about where things happened and stuff. So I'm gonna help some of you guys that are like me in that area. But um, in the first century, this is, this is actually a, a model of Jerusalem that's in Jerusalem. You can take pictures of it, of the first century Jerusalem. This is how Jerusalem looked when Jesus was there. And the model is like bigger than this whole stage. It's really kind of cool. I mean, you can walk and take pictures of it. But I wanted to use this model that sits in Jerusalem to show you the possible locations where Satan does. First of all, um, this, some people think this is the pinnacle of the temple, the top of the actual temple building where the Holy of Holies was. Maybe he went up to the top of that. Quiz time, see if anybody was listening in the Minor Prophets. Does anybody know who was the builder of this particular temple? Hmm? Somebody said it, one person. Herod the Great, yes. Now, if you said Zerubbabel, you'd technically be right because Zerubbabel's temple was sort of the dumpy little temple that the Lord blessed, um, but it was, it was sort of built by rubble, uh, by Zerubbabel. <laughs> um, and, um, but you remember, Herod the Great came along and did a massive remodel of this and built it up really fancy. Um, so some people believe that Jesus was taken to the top of this and Josephus, the ancient historian from the first century, he wrote about this and he said that Herod the Great's temple in Jerusalem was 14 stories high. Uh, 14 stories, that's, a, that's way up there. If you go up into, if you're you know, brave enough to go to downtown Portland, go up into the coin tower and go to the 14th floor and look down. It's, it's a long way down. That's how tall the temple was there in Jerusalem. So some people believe it was here. Um, there, most scholars though say it was on one of the corners of the pinnacle of the Temple Mount, uh, might be one way to say it. Um, there was some buildings up on the corner of the Temple Mount with these terracotta sort of like tile roofs and stuff. Um, but maybe Jesus was up there and this is the southeastern corner of the temple. And uh, when you go to Jerusalem today, that corner is still there and it's very high. And when you look up, you're like, oh, that's a long way down. And that makes people think, because it's obvious today. Here's the thing though, most scholars that I appreciate and, and are legitimate archeological experts, they say it was possibly the backside of what we would call the, the Southwestern side of the Temple Mount. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, you're like, Brett, that's not as far as the front side of the, of the Temple Mount. Why would it be the backside? Well, during the time of Christ, it was higher drop. Uh, over the centuries, civilizations built over that and, and now it, it's raised up. Even if you go to the Western Wall, which is by that third arrow on the backside of that wall, it's not as high. But in the time of Christ, it went down to a much lower section. Um, and, um, and there was this big bridge that went across, I think it was called Robinson's Bridge. When you see it, there's still a little bit of the arch left in the wall from the time of Christ. When you go to Jerusalem, you see it right there. And then above that is this really high place and it would have been 100, about 150 foot drop at least on that, that side. So I don't know, again, I'm kind of nerdy, but th this, is, this is interesting, especially if you're a Bible student. Remember when the disciples said, hey, we wanna show Jesus the temple. Do you remember that? Um, that was later in the whole story of the gospel. But Jesus was so kind, he didn't say, I've already seen it. He could have because he was here when Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus has already seen it. That's just for a freebie for you Bible students and what have you. But anyway, all that to say, back to our main point here, um, how does Satan twist God's word? Well, Satan actually, um, he, he does it in a way um, where he leaves a part of the scriptures out. Um, and I noticed something about Jesus. Jesus is not gonna say, loser, Satan, you misquoted scripture. 
I like how Jesus remains calm during this whole ordeal. Um, the reason that's important is some of you believe if you're doing battle with Satan, that you gotta sort of you know, muster up some, some energy. Because uh, you've seen that on TV. Right, I mean, if you're dealing with Satan, there's gonna be green vomit and head spinning. And, and if you're like the guys on televangelist TV, it's like, ah, rebuke you, devil! And you gotta act weird like that. That's not biblical. That's just stupid. People acting dumb again. Um, that's not in the Bible. Um, when Michael the archangel's contending against Satan in the book of Jude, it says that Michael and Jude, they were content, or pardon me, and Michael and Satan were contending for the body of Moses. Remember that whole story? And what did Michael say? Did he say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus? Is that what he did? No, he didn't freak out. He actually said, the Lord rebuke thee, Satan. That's all he said. Wasn't in a gyration or a tremoring voice. I rebuke you, devil. He didn't do any of that stuff. Just very normal, the Lord rebuke thee. And Jesus does the same thing. So when, when, you, when you watch the movies of exorcisms and all this stuff, people dealing with Satan, don't forget as, as a Christian, we're not the one battling Satan. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Lord is powerful. He's not freaked out. Um, I just think we have to be kind of careful uh, to deal with things that are supernaturally, but very naturally deal with them, not uh, mustering up some weird thing. Jesus models that. He doesn't even yell at him for uh, misquoting scripture here. Um, but in fact, um, he, he actually just speaks, speaks the word. Um, by the way, I think the speaking of the word, you and I using ammo scripture, just a reminder, that's meant to be used against the devil and the enemy and Satan. When we start using the scriptures against people, we might be missing the point. Remember, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that's you and me, but against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. If you're using the sword of the spirit on someone else, you're probably handling the word of God wrong. Um, your husband and a wife in an argument and the wife says, Ephesians, it is written. Ephesians 5, 25 says, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and you're not even close, loser. <laughs> and then the husband says, oh yeah? Ephesians 5 says, wives submit to their husbands. <laughs> well, uh, Okay, Zorro, settle down. We need you to calm down and put your sword away. It reminds me, it reminds me of when Peter pulls out the sword in the garden of Gethsemane. Remember that story? And there's Malchus, the high priest servant, and the Romans, and everybody's around, and they're gonna take Jesus into custody. And Peter pulls out a sword, da 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 And he's not really good with his sword. He misses the guy's head and chops off his ear. So his ear falls down to the ground. Blah, 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 there it is, sitting on the ground. And, 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 then, and then Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, put away your sword. I wonder if Jesus would say that to some of us here in this room. Maybe you that are on social media is putting your scriptures in, so they're really gonna get your gospel gun and blow that person away, the troll on the other end. Ha ha, scripture. And the Lord's like, put away your sword. Now the good news is Jesus reaches down on the ground, picks up the earth, sticks it back on Malchus's head. Uh, I can only imagine whatever, like, did we just see, the, what? A little surgery there in the garden. Um, but be careful about misusing scripture. That's, that's something that's important. I love how Jesus, um, he knows that Satan is you know, wrongly using scripture and he's, and he's actually twisting it. Um, be careful about twisted 
use of the Bible. Um, I, I see that all the time with Christians and pastors even. If we're not careful, we can use scriptures to defend our position, but we're taking scripture out of context. We're not using script. You can almost convince anybody of anything if you get a verse out of context enough. Um, you know, I love one of my life verses. Uh, teaches that McDonald's is actually good for us. It's Proverbs 30 verse eight. Feed me with food that is convenient for me. <laughs> It's a life verse. <laughs> now, if you know your Bible, you're realizing the Proverbs is not defending McDonald's. <laughs> That's not what it's saying. Um, but people will try to use scripture and take it out of context. We hear politicians do that all the time, by the way. But Satan says, oh yeah, you're gonna quote scripture to me? Well, I'm gonna quote scripture to you. And here's what he says. Um, he, he goes to, to Jesus and he says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote to you from Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. And he says, for he shall give his angels charge of thee that they bear thee up and uh, that they, you know, that with their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Giving Jesus sort of reason to, well, I guess I might as well throw myself off because the Bible says if I do it, then the angels will catch me. But Jesus doesn't fall for that. He, you know, he says, you know, I love that he answers back, you know, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He doesn't even, uh, doesn't even acknowledge Satan's misuse of scripture. But what did he leave out? He left out a key phrase and here it is right here. He left out this part to keep thee in all thy ways. It's true what the Psalm said. If you're doing what God wants you to do, if you're in God's ways and you happen to fall, the Lord is gonna bear thee up with his angels and keep your foot from dashing his stone. If you're in all the ways of the Lord. Major difference of what this verse means, but Satan misquotes and left out that. Um, so, um, you know, by the way, I'd say that's the whole point of this verse, to keep you in all the ways. And by Jesus jumping off the pinnacle of the temple would not have been in the ways of the Lord. He goes with me on that. That's important. Satan will use scripture and you'll go, well, the Bible says, and then you'll start to think about stuff and, and Satan will use it against you. Finally, number three, not only questioning God's word, twisting God's word, but number three, ignoring. Satan is seen just completely after trying to quote scripture at Jesus unsuccessfully. Then the third tactic of Satan is to ignore God's word altogether. Um, we see that in verse eight. Again, the devil took Jesus up an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And Jesus said unto him, all, pardon me, and Satan said unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Boy, isn't that something? This is what Satan wants all along. When you read about the fall of Lucifer in the book of Isaiah, remember all the I will statements? I will ascend above the heavens. I will be glorified and magnified above all. Like, like this is what Satan wants. And if he can get Jesus, God in the flesh, to bow down and worship, this would be Satan's number one mission accomplished, to have Jesus bow down and worship. Oh, come on, Brett, this couldn't have been a temptation for Jesus to bow down and worship Satan. But remember, for it to be a temptation, what? It has to be a temptation. What was the temptation in this? Think about that as we keep reading. So Satan says, um, you know, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. Then verse 10, Jesus said unto him, get thee hence Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and ministered unto him. Don't you love that? Jesus endures through these three attacks and he uses scripture each time. And then he says, get thee hence Satan and Satan leaves. 
Um, I'm so thankful Jesus won this battle, by the way, because like I said, we'd be toast. But what was the lure? What was the temptation? I'll, I'll make a suggestion. When Satan offers the kingdoms of the world, some of you might be saying, well, are those really for Satan to give? Who really does own the kingdoms of the world? Well, the answer is Satan himself. Do you remember um, Paul the apostle said this in 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse four, he calls Satan, the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. He's called the God of this world. Jesus called him the prince of this world. Now it says in John 12, uh, um, John 12 31, uh, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. That's what Jesus called Satan, the prince of this world. And this is not to say, by the way, that Satan completely rules the world and the cosmos and everything. God is still sovereign. Um, but, but in his infinite wisdom, he has allowed what has taken place. He gave the title deed to planet earth to Adam and Eve, to subdue the earth, to be in charge of the earth. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, you might say they turned the title deed over to Satan at that point. That was the whole point of getting man to sin, that Satan would then have the title deed. Question, quiz time, when does the title deed go from the hands of Satan back into the hands of the Lord? Anybody know that? Somebody said it, book of Revelation. Remember there in Revelation four or five, we have this heavenly scene and they cry out, who is worthy to open the scroll, the seven seals? And no one was able until Jesus, the Messiah, who was sinless, who was perfect, came and he was able to open the seals of the title deed to planet earth. And that's the whole unfurling of the book of Revelation with that whole notion. But all that to say, um, God is gonna take over the title deed again, but right now, Satan is the God of this world. He's called the prince of this world. And this answers all kinds of questions I have. Why are things so bad in the world right now? If God is love, people say, then why do bad things happen? The answer is really easy. Satan's in charge. And humanity, we've done a great assistance in helping him mess everything up. But the good news is that the Lord says, I wanna save you from your sins. And I wanna eventually redeem this fallen world and put it back into a good state. Um, so, um, you know, so, the, so the Bible says Satan has power over this world. And I wonder if the temptation wasn't really as much to worship Satan, but the temptation was to get the kingdoms of the world back in his possession because the kingdoms of the world represent the people of this world. And do you know the Lord says, oh, I would that none should perish, that all would come to repentance, that everyone would be saved. The heart of the Lord is known throughout the Bible to wanna seek and save the lost people. And this is Satan saying, I'll give you all these kingdoms and all these people, all you gotta do is bow down and worship me. But Jesus recognizes the lie and doesn't fall for that old trick. But Jesus also knows that someday in time, he's gonna take it all back. Um, you know, there's so much scripture on this. I'll, I'll give, do some rapid fire because it's getting late. But Colossians chapter one, verse 13, um, talks about what happens when you become a Christian um, who's been trapped and snared by de the devil. It says, the Lord, Paul says to the Colossian church, um, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. When you become a Christian, you're no longer under the power of Satan. But if you're an unbeliever, uh, still unsaved, not linked to Jesus Christ. Oh, there's all kinds of scriptures that say, like 2 Timothy 2.26. It says that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him and as well. That sounds like a fishing trip, if you ask me. 
Um, and then those that are uh, still unbelievers, they lie in the power of wickedness. It's 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. And we know that we, are, that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. And the bondage that Satan wants to have, Ephesians 2, 2, um, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. And the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He wants to, he wants to lure you in and take you out. And that's what Jesus does. When he hears these temptations, Jesus says, it is written. He gets back to what is true. He speaks the word of God every single time. One thing I have a little theory here, and you can ask the Lord when you get to heaven. But Jesus quotes interestingly from Deuteronomy chapter six, seven, and eight. It's almost as if Jesus did his morning reading that day in Deuteronomy six, seven, and eight. I say that because have you ever noticed if you read your morning devotions in the Bible and you're like, oh, I wonder what that's all about. And I don't know, whatever. And then you go on your day and then somehow, some way those verses pop up and you go, oh, I totally see how, that. how many of you guys have seen that? Those of you that read the Bible in the morning have seen it pop up in the day and you're like, oh yeah, you, yeah, a lot of you. Um, you know, you'll find that to be true. That's one of the benefits. If you're not reading your Bible every day, you're missing out on something that's kind of supernatural that happens when you read your Bible. You'll read the Bible and go, I don't even understand what that's about. And then throughout the day, the Lord will kind of show you where and how to apply that. And it's pretty cool. Jesus, he, he speaks just from three small chapters of Deuteronomy, six, seven, and eight. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of maybe there for us to, uh, to think about. But the key here is to say, it is written, and then speak against the evil one with the word of God. Ammo scripture. Where do you get your ammo scripture? Cabela's? Nope. You get your Amor scripture from the scriptures, the Bible. Uh, for the ironworks guys, we were talking about lust and pornography and all that stuff. And I gave the guys three Amor scriptures. I'll show you what those were really fast. Psalm 103, uh, 101 verse three, I will set no wicked thing, or the King James says, I will set no unclean thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. Wouldn't it be great if every time you saw something lustful, which is force fed in our culture today, if you just said, it is written, I will set no unclean thing or wicked thing before mine eyes. Um, that's the first one. The second one I gave the guys was James 1.12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation for when he is tried or tested, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. There's rewards for those who endure temptation. First Corinthians 6.18 says, flee fornication. And I told the guys, it's okay. If you only memorize those first two words, that's good enough. It is written. Flee fornication, run for your life. That's what the Bible says. And that's the word of God. For every man that doeth, uh, is, uh, sin, every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. First Corinthians six eighteen. Now, all that to say, it gives us our marching orders for battle. When, when the, the enemy Satan is trying to lure you into sin, you need to do what Jesus did and say, it is written, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, what a great reminder for us. I think that the enemy Satan is alive and well and he really wants to mess you up. The four spiritual laws from Campus Crusade, if you're old enough to remember those, I remember one of them, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Sounds so good and it's true, but I think they should put a fifth one in there and say, Satan hates your guts and wants to mess you up real bad because that's a law too. He wants to attack you and lure you and get you sucked in so that you be caught up in sin because that, that means he's got you right where, you want, where he wants you. Now, um, I'd like to finish up with this because some of you are like, Brett, that's great. I wish I would have 
had more victory, more success in some of these lures. I've taken the bait, I've been hooked in sin, and I feel d- dirty and messed up, and I'm the fish with the blowhole on the side, side of his face. That's me. Um, good news, the Lord is able to wash our sins away and forgive us. That's what salvation is. When you accept Jesus as your savior and, and believe and repent of your sin, acknowledge your sin before God and say, I am a sinner, Lord, I've taken the bait and I've done stuff I shouldn't have done. And you repent, then the Lord says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that he'll save you from your sins. And how does he do that? Because he, the innocent Jesus who knew no sin, died on the cross for your sins. Had he been a sinner, he wouldn't have qualified for saving the world. And so Lord, how thankful we are for the forgiveness of sin. And now as we go our way, bless these, your people. I pray that we'd have that joy just walking with you, Lord. Help us to run from sinful things, to see the lures of Satan for what they are. And Lord, to have that hunger and thirst after righteousness. So we pray blessing now. Thank you for meeting us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Blessings on you. See you next time. You're dismissed.